Outcast, the podcast that is giving a voice to anyone who has ever felt like an outsider or an outcast. I want this to be a safe haven, a place of sharing and learning and healing. I'm crossing off something on my bucket list today by welcoming my guest. She's an amazing artist, a musician, an author. And in the late 90s, I was starting my career as a DJ at a little group of radio stations south of Richmond, Virginia, playing her music. And I'm thrilled to have her on my podcast to share her story. Jennifer Knapp is here. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. I can't tell you how exciting this is for me to uh, finally be uh, chatting with you and talking to you about your story. Story. I, I remember vividly uh, playing your music when I was getting started. We were playing Undo Me. We were playing Romans, Heavy Rotation. Uh, you were on the Wow 1999 Christian Contemporary it, Station. It was you. And you, you say all of that, and all I hear is how my midlife retirement got funded. <laughs> <laughs> like, thank you so much for that because that was probably the difference between life and death for me. Like, oh my God, thank you so much. Oh. It was a joy. It was a real joy. And and wow, what a, a great time for me as I look back to, I mean, thinking about starting my career. Christian Contemporary was one of the three uh, stations that we had in Chester, Virginia. And I remember vividly playing some of your music in heavy rotation and how many people requested your songs. It was, it was just, it spoke to us exactly where we were in the Christian Contemporary world. You were, you were right in there with Michael W. Smith. You were right in there with uh, you know, just all of the big names, Amy Grant, you were right in there. How did that, what was that time like for you? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I, the, I would tell you like, there's no way I ever would have like said that I was up there with that group of folks. I mean, I felt like I was a low dog on the, what is it, low, rung, low rung on the ladder, you know, just really completely insignificant and unimportant and just always kind of working my way uphill in my profession and just, yeah, never measuring up. I think part of it, you know, especially because, like, I was kind of like, I think it's really strange looking back that people thought I was this, you know, really rebellious kind of rock star chick that didn't, that was, like, kind of treated with kick gloves, like, I don't know what we're going to do with her because she she seems like she might cause a little bit of trouble if we, <laughs> if we, if we call in and we, you know, what's she going to do? She sings songs like Undo Me. That sounds dangerous. Yeah. And, you know, but, you know, I, you know I, I, I was always myself, which is a really, you know, a really fortunate thing. And I was really lucky to be on a, a, a Christian label that themselves were kind of, not they weren't in the mainstream part of the Christian music stuff, so that was kind of the, the the strange thing about the industry was that I kind of signed at a place and was on a record label that nobody expected much of. I thought I was going to swing in and do some music for a while, and it turned out people just really liked it and I kept calling in. And I guess in the '90s, like pre-internet, like I might have had some viral fame, is the way you might have put it. So, and I never really expected that, you know, so it was, it was really flattering and then of course, you know, dramatically altered the life that I would have in the years to come. The Outcast podcast is supported by Richmond to DC Most folks who work here love living here and that makes a difference. 
At RichmondToDCHelpWanted.com, they're proud to work the hometown advantage around the clock, connecting local employers to local job seekers. RichmondToDCHelpWanted.com makes it easy to post a job, and it's local, so you won't get spammed by faraway job seekers. And if you're looking for a good local job, search jobs and apply online right now. Get the advantage of finding a job close to home at RichmondToDCHelpWanted.com. Local jobs that work. You know, I remember thinking uh, that was such an interesting time um, for music. It was an interesting time in the Christian world. It was it was if you were in it, if you were in the Christian music world, you know what I'm talking about. But it was such an interesting time where I felt like there were so many people, me included, who were sitting in this world of uh, we don't know how to mix our faith and our our personal lives and our careers and we didn't know how to uh come out or how to address things like that and and there were people in the christian i remember vividly people in the christian music world thinking i i thought okay well they're going to come out at some point right so i'll wait for them and then they'll wait for the other people and and how will that go? At one, yeah, that's a pretty good point. <laughs> right? Right? Everybody was waiting. Yeah. Because it was you scary. Know, I mean, it was awful and scary. And, and it still is scary for a lot of people today. But then it was such this crazy, like, heated, aggressive time where you you said certain words and they were red flags, so you just didn't say them. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a, a weird space of... Like for me, I was a I was a college student when I started kind of living day to day, like in what I would call the Christian community. So you know, all my friends are evangelical friends in one way or another. Some Baptist friends, you know, non-denominational friends, and then of course I started uh, working in the Christian music industry. So everybody around you was Christian. You know, working, you know, like my whole life revolved around like this community of people who talk uh, about their faith every day and in a particular way. And in some ways. In the 90s, it got really cool. You know, the What Would Jesus Do movement came yes, through. Yes. Um, DC Talk came through. Yes. And Jesus, you know, all of a sudden it was really cool to be a Jesus freak. But then, you know, there was part of that that, that was saying, oh, wow, Christianity has a place for, like, normal people. Like, to be able to kind of hang out and be cool. And I, that's kind of one of the ways that I got involved in Christian music because, like, oh, I can kind of be myself here. I didn't have to wear pantyhose and patent leather shoes right, anymore. Right. And, you know, I was wearing jeans and just being myself, and I had a couple tattoos, and it was going to be all good. And then, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you'd get, like, these kind of, like, be careful how you're friends with that girl. And I'd be like, what? Like, I didn't, I didn't really kind of know what was going on. And for me, as a, as a gay person, I didn't, I was a late bloomer. It didn't occur to me my sexual orientation. I just didn't really kind of put that on the table until I was my late 20s. And I, and I think part of the reason for that, for me was that I lived in an environment where day to day, like, it was, I wouldn't have said like there was this overt homophobia, but it was just like every day, like there was this push about what a, what a woman was supposed to be, you know, like girls do this and girls do that. And like, as a musician, I felt that kind of thing. Cause I'd go out on stage and sweat and, and, you know, strap on my electric guitar. Everybody got nervous for half a second. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know. It was just me, and I never, I didn't, I, I, I worried less about presenting as a tomboy in any way. And then that, all of a sudden, when I started to be myself in that environment, then you start getting those kind of subtle things like, when are you going to get married and have babies? And <laughs> I didn't have an answer to that question. Yeah. And like, how come you, who are you dating? And like, all these really subtle things. 
And then when I actually started to, you know, like fast forward several years when I was in my late 20s and just starting to to realize that I actually was attracted to women, then it was like the hammer came down. It's just like, no, you can't. Like, this, you can't, you're not a Christian. Um, these kinds of doubling down inside of that environment. So, it was, you know, it's really crazy to go from the space of, I think, and I think it's confusing for a lot of us now who have traveled through that time where it's just like, yeah, God accepts you for who you are, loves you for who you are, however you come. And then all of a sudden you say, well, all right, this is how I come. And then say, no, you can't be here. It was a real bait and switch, I think, for a lot of people. And I think it's kind of like one of these accidents that, accidental journeys that I had and sharing that experience as a musician, you know, like with the public life that I had, and then sharing what, like, yeah, I went through that too, and all the rest of us are going, yeah, like, let's talk about this, because that's a little <laughs> bit of bullshit. <laughs> it's so true. I, I, it's so stinking true. And it was almost like in that time, uh, in the late '90s and the early 2000s, it was almost like it was, it was like, hey, look, as long as we don't admit it and don't talk about it, then we don't have to address the God thing with it. As long as that's not being officially stated somewhere out loud, then we don't really have to address the whole sin, God, how's this gonna mesh thing. Yeah, it gets, well, because it, it lands you in a place of having, like, some smart conversations, I think, is what I label them. You have to start talking about the, pardon me, you have to start t- talking about theology, and, you know, what does it really mean? Like, if like if, if casually we sit back and go, well, doesn't doesn't God love me, like, the way that I am? Right. And if we, we go to that space and talk about that, then that seems like a relatively simple thing. Either God loves me as I am and is willing to travel with me in that way, or God isn't, and that's a, as soon as you take the turn into God isn't able to love me that way, that is a really difficult, time-consuming issue to kind of deal with, and it's it's devastating when when I, and I, I just I can't think of a more devastating turn to think to pay that says that God may not love me for who I was created to be for something that I can't change about myself for something that I really am if I'm honest. And, you know, I, I think giving the license for, for that to be okay with God in turn gives license for our parents to do that, for our friends and our family to be able to do that. And all of a sudden we just see this rot take over our community. And I, I think that's what we've seen, right? When we follow that through with, and then, you know, I think even one argument that I, I have on, on a surface that seems relatively like a, a an easy Christian argument, like, hey, let's not buy Jennifer's music because she get, she's gay and we can't, quote-unquote, support that lifestyle, right? Right. Well, the end of that is you're saying, I don't deserve to have a job. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't deserve to contribute to my community. How do I pay my rent? How do I eat? You're saying that you can't support me in my lifestyle, which means that you put me out on the street. And the end of that is, like, that is a really devastating question. I think as time, time has gone on, I think that, for me, that actually makes me really proud to, for the faith that I've had that's meant something to be able to say, you know, I'm willing to contemplate that. I'm willing to stand up here in the leadership that I had when I was a 20-something and everybody was willing to support me as a Christian in that space and talk about some issues that really matter to us. Here's one that really does. You know, this really matters. This isn't just about 
LGBTQ people in our community, this is about what it means to, like, love somebody, and it's costly. It means standing up there at those times when it's just like, man, this isn't a really popular person to be standing with right now. I'm going to do it. What are the consequences of that? Mm. Um, and for me, I don't know I would have been able to do that without my faith experience um, and, and having had that. And I think, you know, I don't know. I just, I'm really honored to be able to, to be a part of this conversation and to be somebody who's you know, been able to survive that in a certain amount of way. It's been really tough, but I think it matters. I think it matters not just, you know, I think it matters deeply to the LGBTQ community, but I think it matters to our friends and our families when we when we stand and we say, listen, I'm willing to love you and I'm willing to stand beside you when the times are tough. It's huge and it's vulnerable and it's a message that so, so, so many people uh, need to hear even still today. Jennifer Knapp is my guest and we continue to, to talk to her about so many things. I, I want to talk about your uh, your organization that you started, Inside Out Faith. I want to talk about your book. Um, I want to talk about your music. So I'm glad you're going to be here for about two or three days with me and just hanging out. That's very nice of you. Uh, all right. Um, <laughs> hours and hours of podcast. <laughs> we'll just keep going. I, I want to talk. Um, first, let me ask you, when, when did you come out publicly uh my public coming out was a 2010 so that's when like the press release came out and everything but like i'd been with my partner like five years or so before that and we never like we were just out always out as soon as we knew we were a couple our families knew um i wasn't touring at the time so it wasn't really a factor for me i thought i'd kind of retired from music entirely so i was like fine i don't have to deal with that (laughs) Right. Um, but you know, it wasn't until it wasn't until several years later that I, I wanted to do music again. I was like, oh, like I felt like that disclosure was really important. So, um, you know, as a private citizen, it seems really strange. I mean, most of us don't put out a press release, yeah, right? Exactly about what our sexual orientation is. But the people around us, you know, that love and care about us, you know, I think it's important to to share those things. And obviously, as I was in a long term relationship. Um, you know, my friends and family knew that and were supportive of that, of which I was really fortunate. But yeah, 2010 was when the press release came out and that was just a whole experience to have. <laughs> I remember it vividly and I would love for you to kind of take me a little behind the scenes. What was that like right before you sat down with several people to do an interview, right before you sat down and released this press release, when you were having meetings with, with your people who were a part of your music and Industry. What was that yeah. like? What were those conversations like leading up to that? Well, uh, you know, I think the big one, the, the biggest, hardest decision that I had to make was whether or not I, I wanted to validate that process. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is, I, I, I like I had a chip on my shoulder. Like in a in a fantasy world, I really wanted to believe it didn't matter whether or not I disclosed that in an official way or not. Um, like. What did like part of me is like, what do I owe the general public to make an announcement? Like, mm-hmm. this seems kind of ridiculous, right? Right. Who, why should you have to declare this? I mean, it's pretty obvious I'm in this relationship, I don't hide it. So, what, was there a point to doing all this rigmarole? Because th- that's a part of it that, as a normal human being, it's really weird to sit down and have to give interviews about what your sexual preferences are. Like, <laughs> and not only that, like, what I was what it felt like was I was talking about the sexual gender, like the gender of my, my life partner. Like it wasn't, it didn't in a weird way, it didn't really feel like about me. And so it's bringing in, you know, my partner who is not a public figure into the public eye um, in a way that they just, 
it was the luck of the draw. They fell in love with me. I fell in love with them. And unfortunately, I had this public life. Yeah. So that was really, it was a weird thing to try and get my head around. And the the thing that's important that helped me make that decision was two, it was kind of two ways. One, there was a professional side. Is that when I started making music again, there were there were Christian music labels and radio stations that got whispers that I was in the studio recording again. So they were calling me and anticipating, uh, you know, wanting to play my music and supporting that. And I knew that there were some conservative uh, retailers and broadcasters out there that wouldn't support that. Right. Um, and and so I didn't want. And, and secondly, I wasn't going to do faith. I wasn't doing Christian music. I was cursing in my music, and I'm like, when you guys hear this, you're not going to want it, but you're also not going to want it because I'm anticipating that you should know that, you know, this is my sexual orientation, and that might be a factor for you guys. And so I felt like in terms of disclosure and professional, like that was a, a thing that I should do. But secondly, and probably more importantly, as I was starting to play gigs, and the rumors were kind of swirling around that I was gay, like there are people coming to my show my shows talking about how important it was for them that I would tell a story that they couldn't tell. Yes. Um, other Christians that had grown up in homes where they'd lost everything because their parents had kicked them out. They'd lost their communities. They'd really struggled with, with finding their own confidence in, inside of this story. And I was like, man, like if, if, if I don't, like, I don't just tell the story for myself. I tell the story for other people. And, um, you know, I just, I, I felt like, if I if I kept the chip on my shoulder and I didn't tell that, I was in some way letting somebody like like this this narrative have power over me that it didn't own. Like the power in me is to be able to tell my story, to be able to talk about who I was wherever I was at and and in getting to do that, if I got to do that, we all kind of get to do that together. So, you know, I, that that's kind of a long story but I mean, th- those are the two major factors. It's like all of a sudden, you're like, yeah, it is a weird thing to have to do press releases and interviews about that. And I think it's bizarre that we're in a society that that becomes necessary, but it is necessary for us to do that. And it is necessary to do that not only as an individual, um, you know, and being able to tell our own story, but it keeps the press's power from dominating over our story and writing the narrative. We get to write our narrative by speaking our narrative and telling our story. So you were, you were in a spotlight and you did inspire and encourage so many of us in the community to be able to say, yes, I can do that too. The, the, the wind that we sort of followed with you, I think is just so inspiring. So I, I know so many people would love to thank you for that. Well, and you, you kind of mentioned too. I think it's worth mentioning too. It's still very difficult, especially in conservative yeah. environments, especially in rural areas. It's, you know, it, it, there's still a lot to lose by coming out, um, and dangerously so. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to over glorify those who can essentially come out of the closet. Um, it is a liberating experience to be able to do, but it's also, you also have to, you know, I, I think sometimes we skip over the fact that there really is a dangerous place to be able to do this, to be, you know, I was really fortunate. You know, I talk about this story. I had been in a private life for seven years trying to contemplate what this move might make for mm-hmm. me. Right. So, you know, that that took a lot of, you know, therapy. It took a lot of patience. It It took a lot of being willing to know my own voice and my own, you know, uh, like 
have an anticipation a little bit of my own endurance of what I'd be able to handle and uh, you know a lot of people around me to support that so I don't I don't want to make for any second yes I do believe there's liberation on the other side of coming out but that's not always this massive reveal there's step by step there's having a good support system around you and I, I think sometimes in our highly you know a social network and, you know, big announcement type of viral audiences that we forget that life is slow and it's a journey. And to make sure that we understand that it's not always ripping the Band-Aid off. Sometimes it's incremental. And we know we reveal ourselves one person at a time and build up around us a community of people who can support us while we are out. So I think that's really important to cover. So important. That's powerful stuff. Jennifer Knapp, artist, musician, uh, author on the podcast with me this week and also uh, going to be on the second part as well. So don't go anywhere. It's going to be more. Uh, but I tell you, I want to, uh, you were just talking about uh, back in 2010, that's when you publicly came out and I want to talk about um, uh, this was also the time that you went on with Larry King this was quite the interesting um, I don't even know I, I, I it was it was one of it was so uncomfortable at times because not with Larry King but with with uh, with the senior pastor uh, from Horizon Christian Fellowship right um, Botsford. yes and, I like saying his name because I think his name should be said in that encounter I my name is said a lot but he he needs to own his position in that too oh Bob 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 no doubt about it um, <laughs> wow I, I mean you you basically had, if you haven't seen it, um, I, I would I would encourage you to go to go watch it. But you basically had the um, the same old old comfortable debate uh, that still people are having today: is homosexuality a sin? Are you going to hell? Um, the, these this it was. I don't like him. <laughs> just... Well, it's easy not to like somebody who you know. It's and that's I mean that's a question I get a lot. You know, like is can you like somebody who thinks that that, you know, the core of who you are is a sin. And I'd be like, oh, that's a really good question. And it's really hard. So hard. It's <laughs> I mean, so hard. somebody fundamentally says, you know, yeah, I love you. Like, and that's kind of like, I think, I think what that episode shows for me, you know, Bob, or, or I remember ba- Pastor Bob came in behind the scenes before we went on air. He says, you know, Jennifer, I'm here because I love you. And I'm like, if you love me, you how how can you say that you love me when you're sitting here telling me you don't appreciate anything about who I am? That you're telling me like something that I can't change about myself is sending me straight to hell. Like, dude, like you got to listen. Shut up. Like, shut up and listen to what I'm trying to to talk to you about my experience. And but you know, I don't. At the same time, like I I'm compassionate for for him. Like, I think even in watching. You know, as I've gone back and watched that experience, there's a place where Bob didn't have anything else to say. Yeah. Like, he grew up with saying, this is a sin, and ends up stammering, you know, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, at which point, I, you know, you kind of want to not laugh, because it's, <laughs> it's such a used trope oh, now about... Right, and he didn't have anything else, and, and I actually felt for him, and I think I think what I learned personally in that moment is, and I struggled too. Like I didn't, I didn't know like what to say next. Like even at the time, I remember thinking like I was just terrified. I in those in in and around that time, I was terrified to say, God no, you know, same sex attractiveness is not a sin. Like I I couldn't say it because I've been so entrenched in that world for so long that it just felt like I was inviting the thunder 
you know, the lightning of God that just hit me right between the eyes. <laughs> like now, I'm way more comfortable with that. Going, no, let's 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 be able to talk through this, and you know, I can bore people theologically with this, and but and getting into that, but it's just like, man, like you can't, like we're not there, and and to be able to. to talk about that and practice that it's really hard and i think in that if you look at that clip you see me struggling with being able to to find a new way to talk about it and we see another guy running into where it's difficult to talk about it and and you know both of us were struggling and a lot of people are on you know i'm fortunate because most of the people i talk to are on my side and i think most of the people who talk to bob are probably on his side right um but you know what makes me sad about that is I've never seen him again. You know, I, I, I know that I'm probably not likely to step into his church, and I've invited him to shows when I know I'm in his area and he doesn't come to mine. And but I, you know, I, I think that's the hard part is that somewhere in there, you know, not having ill will, the understanding that there's a, I do understand that there's a there's a contingency of Christians out there who, even though they know the damage is this cause, they continue to perpetrate this. And I think that's an evil thing to do. It's a sinful thing to do, and it needs to stop. But I also think there are a lot of people somewhere stuck in the middle that are in a habit and not really knowing what to do, and were like me, and in some ways like Bob, going, I don't know what to do next. Um, you know, I don't want to err in the wrong way, or I don't want to teach something wrong, but it, it takes listening to the LGBTQ community and understanding what that experience has been like. And for 20 or 30-plus years, we've been trying to tell our stories, and it's turned out the bad fruit that everyone said that we give is not actually bad fruit. Like, once we come out of the closet, like I said, it's a liberate, it's a liberative process that starts to, like, actually open up your life into being able to kind of, like, for me, I've returned to my faith communities and been able to talk about what this experience has been like. I've been able to kind of meet and, and fellowship with other people that have brought life into my life, not darkness. And I, I don't know. I think it's just a really important experience to be able to go through. And had I not gone through that experience and Larry King in, in such a way, I think it would have been really easy for me to tip the scales and just say, yeah, the, the church is just this evil, awful place that I don't want to be around anymore. I learned something from that experience, even though it was kind of difficult to go through at the time. And and so uh, scary. There was this, you know, there's this moment when you're watching the watching the interview where it's like I paused. I paused the interview right right before you kind of answered the first question from him. And I just I it was this uncomfortable moment where I thought, oh, God, what is she going to say? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I would probably was thinking the same thing. I'm about, sure. I'm going to say, I mean, I remember sitting this guy and my body's just shaking, you know, like I can't, my, my, the chemicals in my body were just, I'd never been so terrified in my life. And I don't know this guy, right? Right. Uh, it's, it's really hard when somebody's sitting there trying to put you on, uh, it's, it's so unusual. I mean, who who puts somebody on a tribunal like that? You know, and it's great entertainment, I think, for Larry King. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I said yes to it, uh, but you know, it. I don't know. Like, I just remember my body shaking and just trying to like not cry and not not cower down from an experience because, like, somewhere in, in the middle of me, it, like in deep down inside with this. You know this fu moment of going, man. You don't you don't get to write the story for me. 
Like, none of you get to write this. Like, I'm normal. <laughs> like, stop telling me. It's, it's kind of this weird kind of gaslighting where, you know, like, you can't tell me I'm crazy. I know I'm not crazy. I know I'm not crazy. I'm normal. And to be able to, to fight through one of those moments like that for me was, like, in that moment I felt like, you know, I was not just, you know, the, the rock star me. Like, it was really humbling to feel like, oh, wow, like, I'm a real human being underneath all of this, and this is worth fighting for. Like, this isn't a joke. Um and, you know, I, I even pled, I pled with this guy back in backstage going, you know, you, you have to understand I'm a real human being. And you just can't come in here and just pretend like I'm not real. Mm. <laughs> like, you don't know me. Like, stop, stop having this conversation like you, you know me and stop having this conversation on behalf of all of these people you don't know. Like, get to know me. Get to know somebody. Like, stop just kicking everybody out of your church. Yes. Get to know us. Like, here, like, you shut up. You've talked for a while. It's your turn to listen. And I don't know. It was just, it was it was really hard to push through that and, and demand that and still try and stay gracious while, you know, there are cameras on you and everything else. But, I mean, it looks pretty good on the surface. But when, when I got done with that, I was, I had a show a couple hours south of L. We filmed that in L.A. And I had to get in a limo and hightail it to a, a a show I had in um, San Diego, like just like right after that, I literally had to get out of the car and go onto the stage. The whole time I was in the car, I was just shaking. I was by myself, just shaking and crying, <laughs> just just going, "What just happened?" It just it felt like surviving something traumatic, and you know I knew that I'd be able to to handle that, but. You know, I wouldn't recommend an experience oh, like that for everybody. No and I, I mean, how did you not drink the entire way to the show? Like, that's the other thing. Like, I would have been. I, I did have a flask whew, of whiskey with me. I will night. admit. <laughs> I, w- I, shoo, I would have been like, okay, I need seven shots and then maybe I can go on stage. But, maybe. Yeah, but I mean, knowing that it was going to be, you know, I, I don't want to like make light of it. I mean, I knew that was going to be difficult. Yeah. I got on the phone with a friend. Self care was important. You know, it was, I actually really liked that I had a show after that because it gave me something constructive to do, something that I knew that I was good at, something, you know, that I would immediately after I got done with that face an audience of people that I knew that we were in this together. I mean, those are the kinds of, you know, I, I think these, for me as a person who worries about the mental health of our community in the midst of these traumas that we go through, I think it's really important that we don't over-glorify it to say, man, there are some really deliberate things you have to do. These things are really hard, and it's not just, you know, surviving it and then drinking when we get done. I'll, sure. uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that's what you said either. Like, I did... I tried to go through those things and kind of tried to self-care in some ways. But, yeah, like a, a, a flask of whiskey didn't make it right. laying in my backpack, you exactly. know. Exactly. But I wasn't drunk when I got there. Like, it was just taking some moments and knowing and understanding that I was going to have to center and get back to a place of normalcy um, after some, you know, and acknowledging, wow, yeah, you just came through something really traumatic. And take a minute get your bearings on you, get around some people who love and care about you and, you know, recover. Like now you have to recover. And that, that took some time, you know, that like I, and I think even for a long time, I didn't even recognize what that event meant 
um, you know, I'm talking about that like something like eight years later, you know, where I'm going, I can still remember the trauma of that moment. And, um, but it took me a long time to kind of process that. And I, yeah, it wasn't just some like, hey, I'm a superhero, look what I did. Like it was, exactly. it was every month, like it's, I think, I guess that's all to say is I think every month that the, the people I hear about, um, having experienced that and watched that and the sweating and everything that they experienced and watching that, I, was, I felt exactly the same way in the middle of it. Singer, songwriter, author Jennifer Knapp returns for part two on the podcast in two weeks. JenniferKnapp.com, her website, and you can find her music there and her tour dates there as well. JenniferKnapp.com. You can always email me and get in touch with me at d at wbqb.com. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by the host and guests on this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of Centennial Broadcasting.